Welcome to another episode of Urban Life Enabled, Enerhub's podcast for sharing news, views and stories about connecting, activating and measuring urban life in our public places and spaces. My name is Adam Beck and I'll be with you for the next little while as we unpack another topic relevant to enabling urban life. So let's go. In this episode of the Urban Life Enabled podcast, we share a recording of a webinar undertaken on Thursday, the 1st of June, around place analytics. And joining the panel were four fantastic guests, Adam O'Connor, CEO of Count Culture, James Pete, who is General Manager of Product Development at Enerhub, Lucinda Hartley, Founding Director of Neighbourlytics, and Norian Ubeshel, who is Director and CEO of Place Intelligence. This recording is about an hour in length. We hope you enjoy it. I'd like to uh, I'd like to start by acknowledging the tri- traditional owners of the land at which I'm joining this call from today, and acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I know that we're joining from all places of not only Australia and also New Zealand and beyond, and we want to respect and acknowledge the ancient history that many of our communities and cities are built upon and we look forward to embracing uh, First Nations and Maori uh, stakeholders views and participation in the way that we shape and plan the future of our public places and spaces. For those of you that aren't aware or know about the Life Enabled program at Enerhub, you can check it out on our website, lifeenabled.com. There's a hyphen between life and enabled, and you can also find recordings uh, and other information and resources that we've been sharing about our previous webinars, but also some of the projects that we're, we're working on right now. So I've assembled four guests to join us and work through this, uh, this world of place analytics, uh, and I'm excited to, to have a, a, a diversity here in terms of background and professions. There's certainly uh, a number of years experience uh, in, this, uh, in, in this panel, and I might invite them to uh, switch their camera on now. I've got Adam O'Connor, CEO of Count Culture, joining us from Auckland. James Pete from Enerhub's own shop here as General Manager of Product Development. Uh, Lucinda Hartley, founding director of Neighbourlytics, and Noreen Ubeshel uh, from Place Intelligence, who's actually joining us at the moment from the United States. Friends, my panel, thank you so much for joining. I'd also like to mention to our attendees, you can use the Q&A at any time. I'll keep an eye on those uh, questions that come through. But for now, let's uh, let, let's kick things off. And I've got a range of uh, points that I wanted to work through in this hour together. But I'm going to start by asking each of you to sort of share a little bit of a story. And I want to sort of set the scene uh, and get your take on your various worlds when it comes to place analytics. And Adam, I'm going to go straight to you first. Um, I I go to the year sort of 1988. And I'm going to read some notes here um, in previous, you know, versions of Count Culture. Um, you know, really, it, it takes us back to 1988, the world's first sort of computer vision people counting uh, technology is, is created. So there's quite a history there that um, your organisation has been part of. And what I, what I like and what I read at some, uh, at some point on your website was really that the, the context for which you were evolving as an organisation and you, you pitched a number of questions essentially that the organization has slowly worked through the first one being how many uh and then then sort of you know why is that um can we fix this um who's using this is this safe how can we make this place better Uh, i love that strategic questioning that I, i suspect has guided you along the way so adam um through your lens through your journey, your professional career, the organisation, Count Culture now. Tell us about the place analytics journey for you to start with. 
Sure, thanks, Adam. Um, look, places are all about people. So whether you look at a national level, a regional level, right down to a CBD business uh, district, even down to an active transport facility such as a cycleway. Um, pl uh, place is all about people. So having data to be able to make decisions to make those spaces better for people is key. Um, take it to a CBD environment. Um, we do lots of work with, with cities um, and you know a successful city is based upon how many people are there. So not only looking at how many people are there through various different um, data measures such as um, uh, video analytics, for example, um, Wi-Fi, location data, um, but using all that data together um, with such as retail spend data, you can get a really good um, understanding of what's happening within a business district and what's, how it's successful. So yeah, spaces are all about people and you can even apply that right down to, you know, an indoor facilities such or a retail um, retail chain for example yeah okay Th thanks for that Lucinda um, sort of the same question of you but just setting the scene here um, and I don't want to embarrass you in any way you know 2004 you start as a landscape architect in the private sector um, you continue that till 2010 you know working aspect studios handsome partnership um, you, you, you co-found and become the CEO of Co-Design Studio. Uh, I think when I first met you, 2017, Neighbourlytics becomes real and you go on a journey and sort of this landscape architect, you know, evolves and, you know, has what seems to be a passion for sort of digital and data, but still very much grounded in place. Um, talk to me about the world of place analytics from your perspective and your journey. Yeah, I mean, working in data science from a landscape architecture background is a totally logical step as um, yeah. <laughs> you'd agree. Um, I mean, and probably to Adam's point, it does come back to a question of how do we create places for people more broadly, but uh, it is more fundamentally that you can't manage what you can't measure. And I think a great frustration uh, in the work that we were really leading at co-design in, in, in placemaking specifically was looking at many different, very manual strategies of how we would improve place activation, whether it's pop-up spaces or events or working with business associations. And most of the value that was created wasn't actually about the physical environment at all. It was about that more revenue was created for the traders, that there were more visitors, that people knew their neighbours when they didn't know before. And so this incredible value that was created was going not only unmeasured, but not really understood, like what were the success factors that we could replicate in other locations? And so I guess it's from that curiosity that um, got hurtled into uh, place analytics. Uh, and that was really catalyzed for me by the opportunity to work with the United Nations on the sustainable development goals, because if we're thinking about how do we change the goal for cities, we need to think about how on a global scale we're going to measure them. So it's got to be beyond how do we measure one street corner at a time? How do we measure like global impact? And so that big data analytics space of how do we actually leverage the millions of data points that we create about our lives every day online through mobile phones, through social media accounts, through our spend information and piece that together to actually understand human behaviour uh, can give us a totally new lens and window. So it really does come back to that fundamental um, people question, um, even though it's broadened many different disciplines. Yeah, okay. Interesting. I've, I've got some follow-up questions that I'll, they'll come back to. Uh, Noreen, you spent sort of, of course, your early career over in the in the US. Um, ecological footprinting, I noticed uh, in, in in your in your sort of CV. Um, you then head head to Curtin University and get in the campus planning game, um, space optimization as well, and then 2019, hello, place intelligence. You know, another quite interesting sort of um, e evolution and journey there. Talk to me about your world of place analytics from your perspective. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Um, Narayan <clears throat> here from Place Intelligence, and um, thanks for the opportunity opportunity to share today. Um, yeah, my background really starts in, you know, this building science space, um, thinking about how we measure and track the performance of assets, and that then starts expanding that line of logic to well it's not one building is great but we're actually huge cityscapes and so naturally 
um, thinking a bit about scale. Um, and then ultimately coming back down to the, the practitioner. And one of the, one of the aspects of place measurement that's really important, I think, is empowering the practitioners to build literacy and skill to be able to use data um, in their workflows. And that's something where we've um, really, you know, you know, building on what Lucinda's saying, you know, all this data that's there, but if people don't have the capability to use it, then, you know, we, we sort of find ourselves in, a, in an interesting spot as providers of data and insight and information if that is if that can't be continued um throughout the life cycle of a, pro a project so yeah I, I guess our aim is really around how do we upskill the profession and then bring that mindset of wanting to you know a, a be data driven in the first place which we know that it's not always the case um, and then how do we build resiliency in our practice as professionals wanting to, you know, pursue this as the next generation of how we're actually going to design, plan, manage cities and spaces. Yeah, thanks for that. James, lucky last, um, your, your career journey is, is quite an extensive one. Uh, private sector, architecture, um, slowly sort of creeping into you know information technology um digital and data um spent time of course morton bay regional council you know in policy making on in the private uh, in the public sector and now back in the um in the private sector and um you know sort of stewarding you know new products and both hardware and software um can you can you sort of summarize your your journey in place analytics or the relevant parts of your career that relate to place analytics from your perspective what are your what are your sort of reflections on that journey yeah um look probably half my career has been in working in architect in architecture in and around architecture either as a originally as a draftsman but moving quite quickly into um working with uh, with architects um, and the tools that they use to create public spaces. Um, and so sort of half my career, very much in and around um, that world, the uh, public realm, and then moving into very much an IT role um, in local government, but that quickly morphed into um, a role probably over the last sort of eight years where um, I, essentially was asked the question which was well how um what does digital transformation mean for us as a local government organization and then that very very quickly turned into you know it's a land authority and uh, digital is all about data how do we actually bring the the public realm together with data to inform um you know the policies that we make the decisions that we make the plans that we make so very much um, uh, uh, since then, in the, I've been within a hub um, for about um, 10 or 11 months now. And uh, at, in council, I was um, you know, very much engaged with uh, the industry, the fledgling industry, which is IoT and um, place analytics, essentially. Um, and now I'm part of that industry effectively with the, the, I guess the frustrations I had as a, as a client, I'm now getting to maybe fix some of those <laughs> things. Um, but, but also look, it's, it's, there's just so much opportunity in terms of innovation. And I really wanted to be a part of that. Um, I've, I've got a bunch of ideas. Our team has a bunch of ideas, um, as you know, Adam, and, we we just want to you know bring those to bear as as products and services because you know we believe that that just there's huge benefit available if we can you know form and shape these products and services to actually do what they're supposed to do yeah no i appreciate that that james so a, a point you made you mentioned iot there um place and obviously the gathering of data i'd, I'd like to talk about data for a moment and i i kind of know a little bit about putting james aside here for a moment um i i kind of 
know a little bit about all of the organizations that are sort of represented here. And I know that there's a diversity of data sets and data assets that you're all leveraging um, to, you know, help build intelligence about our places and spaces so we can do things better. Uh, Adam, you're very much, um, you know, neck deep in the actual data gathering, you know, of raw data, also analytics and things like that. Um, but also know, you know, that um, other data assets about place, you know, you're all ingesting as well into your sort of various black boxes and platforms, and we'll get onto that as well. Um, can I get um, can I get some views around the data assets that we have at our fingertips now that we can access about place, and how fast is that world changing? um how 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 sort of um how easily accessible it is um how proprietary it is um is is it sort of a world that is one that whilst we want it to be all about people and place um there's there's also sort of this challenge of you know the data itself accessing the data and of course, which, which which data is the is the best data? So, can we have a conversation around data for a few moments, Adam? I'm, I'm going to circle back to you to, to sort of start with. Um, has, has it always been camera vision um, and, and analytics? Is is it sort of you know sort of a bit static there with with you? That's what you focus in on, or what have you come across? Um, there's so many different technologies out there now from vision, LiDAR, sensing, it all really comes down to what you're trying to measure at the, at the particular location. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've got a bit of a cough, by the way. That's right. Um, so, yeah, so there's lots of different uh, technologies out there now, and especially with um, the convergence of AI and neural networks, there's access to lots of open source technologies as well to capture data. Um, but there's also the methods of managing a network of sensors. So. A big thing for a city or a place when you're collecting data it's not only the sensors themselves but it's actually having a um, maintenance contract around managing the sensors so all hardware or devices have network failure so it's all about managing making sure that the data is coming through flowing through the sensors um, not just about the technology itself yeah okay Narayan, can i ask you about your time at curtin university um, campus planning, space optimization, you know, these are little mini cities that are packed full of people. How, how, how sort of tactile and tangible, you know, was, was data gathering when you were doing your time there? And what are you seeing now in terms of sort of counting and data assets that are available? Yeah, I, universities are, are quite like that little worlds um, into themselves. And, uh, but they face the same challenges as a city or a local government. Um, but of course, has you know potentially more autonomy over the you know the way that the the capital budget is used. Um, most universities, especially large Australian universities, have challenges with you know age of building assets, the life cycle of your you know physical environment versus the need to invest, and that then means you need information to build business cases around, you know, what's the size of the student body, how many people are actually here, right? And an enrollment doesn't mean someone's on campus. And in Australia, attendance isn't mandatory. So here then comes the need for the traditional TEFMA survey, which is the clipboard exercise. And this is really, I guess, when I started in this in 2011. And um, that was part of the, the role was coordinating, you know, fleet of people for a week at the busiest week to count and then share that. And, um, and then progressively, of course, like rolling out, you know, different kinds of technology, whether that's Bluetooth or, um, you know, Wi-Fi, et cetera, with different types of partners, whether it's, you know, Cisco's or Microsoft or Hitachi's um, getting, you know, more and more real time. But then of course comes this burden of big data and, very few people having the capability within the organization to actually work with that in a meaningful way. And then the cost of it is also then becoming um, becoming a challenge. So I think, you know, from my career sort of started with this manual piece of how do we collect it? 
you know, at least in a room by room level, which is it, which is ultimately one of the big challenges in the city scale spaces, you know, many big data sets are big, but they don't get vertical and we can't get into like the optimization of assets. So, yeah, I think the, the technologies have changed quite a lot in terms of, you know, being able to work with and scale solutions to collect big data and but but the need for data scientists and data engineers is just skyrocketing right so we don't there's no easy solution yet for um working with some of these very large data sets can i come back to you straight away with a with a sort of a sub question there um and i don't want to get off track but i i am interested um pre and post covid um i have two 20 something year old daughters both at university um but rarely there um online teaching sort of seems to be the norm i think maybe in some areas how has place changed you know pre-2020 and sort of now how much is that going to stick has that has, has that required you as a practitioner to re recalibrate or redesign algorithms or is there anything you could share around pre-2020 and you know I, the campus example sort of you know sort of prompted this question but can we dig in a little bit there just briefly and, and then Lucinda I want to ask you the next that question next as well I, you know what is the baseline I think yeah. is, is, a, is an interesting question um, everyone you need to have a baseline whether it's comparing to somewhere else or looking at your place in from the lens of the past. Um, from the from the higher ed perspective, of course, the the universities have billions of dollars of assets, right? And so the great universities over that last decade invested in places because they recognized that the student experience wasn't just about learning at the course, right? It's about everything else that happens in that space. And um and investing in in places is the best way to create you know a sticky campus in a sticky environment and so here then getting that data of you know what is the data point that you want to use to say well best practice was this university here or that one there so i think being able to look at pre-covid patterns can help you set kpis for the future um i think there's still just a general um lack of clarity on what is the new normal right now i i i think we can keep looking and seeing and it COVID's an amazing for data scientists is it's like a great reset point you know he, here it was normal and then and now we're going into something new and then because that happened remote working and all distributed learning and all of that took place and so i think you know from from our perspective we, we have had the blessing of being able to work with you know, big data sets from the past to help set pre-COVID baselines, um, but it's still, what is the new normal? And I don't think that that's really been um, determined yet. Like what, because we're deciding now, like, do we want to work from home? Do we want to study from home? What's the role of the campus? And this is where I think, you know, the 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 types of people on the call today, we, we have the opportunity to really help influence that direction of society um, by bringing more data into the equation faster, yeah, and earlier on in the process. No, thank you, thank you for that response, Lucinda. I think there was a couple of questions backed up there that that we want to work through with you. One was around you know different data assets, but um, as 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 sort of you know rightly pointed out, COVID became a little bit of a reset. I'd like to know what that meant for you as a practitioner as well what part of your place analytics world changed as well so i'll, I'll let you take those questions in in the order you want to i think the 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 question with data at the moment at this point in time isn't the availability of data it's becoming more available it's becoming lower cost it's becoming like more ubiquitous um, but the challenge, and Ryan raises earlier, is how do we actually interpret and use and apply it? And what is the propensity for us to actually invest time and cost in doing that? So it's one thing to be able to have um, data sets. 
But the questions that we're often working through with our customers is what level of granularity is needed because you you may need for you know managing a very specific site or place a very very high level of fidelity of knowing exactly what point in time people were in a place but if i might be doing a strategic plan for an entire municipality I may actually not want to spend as much because I don't need as much fidelity to actually understand the trends and patterns over time in a much larger geographic area. And so these are the trade-offs that we need to consider when we're thinking about how do we make the data usable? It's analytics is a huge part of it. Like how do we use analytics to actually interpret, compare, understand, but there are other um, market maturity forces around like what are we prepared to pay for it and how how do we what's our knowledge and experience in using and applying data-driven decision making when we weren't well many practitioners today were not educated that way and so it's actually a shift in their mindset and thinking about how they apply those solutions and it might be much cheaper than a survey but if I've used a survey for 20 years I might feel quite afraid to replace that with something else. So those other dynamics come into play, I think, when we're thinking about data sources really importantly. Um, to your point about COVID, what uh, an observation that I would make is not only did it have our lifestyles changed dramatically, and we've all had a lived experience of that personally, but the data would also show that we're spending time in different locations, we're involved in different kinds of activities, we value different things, which means many of things like our retail centres, our home layouts are no longer fit for purpose for the way that we want to live and operate and is causing a lot of shifts and changes um, in, in that, particularly in that property sector uh, market as well. There has been a change. What is the normalization pattern? You probably have to let that play out a little bit longer, although there are some early indicative trends. One thing I will say has concretely changed is people's uh, maturity around making data-driven decision-making because previously lifestyles had not dramatically changed that much in recent decades. And so we were able to rest on our own assumptions, our gut feel, the dark art of making a decision and kind of get away with it because it was probably likely to work in a context where lifestyles have shifted so much that we actually don't really know what communities want and need. We're not really sure who our customer is anymore. Um, the need for having an evidence base to support that decision making and that risk of making the wrong decision is so much higher. So that maturity and interest and appetite for data is what I would observe is one of the greatest shifts that's come out of the last few years. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to sort of move us to a conversation around place, public places, and the role of the private sector for a moment. And I'm going to start with Adam, and then James. I'm, I'm going to go to you, um, Adam. I don't know if there's if there's a, a more polarizing, controversial, you know perception around CCTV than any other technology I know that's out there in terms of data gathering. Um, and, and it's sort of what, what your core is. It's, it's, it, it's, um, it's your world. Um, can you share views with us around where things are at with public places and cameras? Um, it's one that continue continues to come up as the first question in any Q&A panel. And we know from the community perspective that a camera equals spying, you know, like it, it's just highly emotive, right? And um, you seem to still be in business after all this while. So th th there's still sort of certainly a demand for this. Can you talk through public places and cameras for a moment? Privacy is a massive topic. It's the first thing which we get asked now when we're deploying systems into CBDs, into retail. You know, you've um, in Australia, the stories with the good guys and Bunnings using um, devices to capture personal identifier data. It could be a number plate, it could be facial recognition. I think the trick is to only collect as much data as what you need. So with our systems, um, for an example, yes, we use overhead video cameras. The reason why we do that is because it gives us a, a lot of data of an object's trajectory. We don't care if it's a, a man, woman, child, or, you know, whatever as such. Um, but then it's processed on the edge. It's deleted on the fly. So there's no personal identifiable data. It's just the count and the journey data, which is set to our, set to our platform or our customer's platform for reporting. Um, one of the um, best practice, um, which I'll recommend for deploying systems is to run a privacy risk assessment. 
um, which are available online, work with your clients to get that done. That being said that, you've gone through the due diligence, the client's on board. Um, if anyone ever goes, hey, there's that camera outside my house counting a cycle away, what is that? Is it spying on me? You know, um, you can pull it out and and note to say that um, that you haven't collected anything. But yeah, it's a big topic um, in New Zealand at the moment. Um, you know, a lot of the Chinese cam ch uh, Chinese camera manufacturers are being banned for for whatever reason. Um, you know, um, putting into CBD environments. But it's a yeah, it's a big big topic. But it's all about you know for us just capturing enough data for what you need, and you know we don't need to capture who that person is. Adam, I, I know you're going to be biased here, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but <laughs> is it fair to say that cameras and vision, capturing vision, is a is a pretty killer app, right, in terms of the, the richness and, and, and depth of sort of place that you can potentially capture? Is that a valid statement I'm making there, or have I, or have I missed the point? There's some other... There's some other way. I know there are other ways and there's data assets, of course, around what's happening in place, but but vision seems to be pretty powerful, doesn't it? 100%. Look, there's, as I said before, there's lots of different technologies um, to capture data and they're all applied at different locations. They all work well. The benefit with vision um, or video analytics, lots of challenges as well. Um, but when you're looking to understand a specific facility or entrance, um, you can we can classify details such as who is that object, well, not actually who is that object, what is that object, is that a person, is that a scooter, is that a, um, a bike, recall the speed of the mode. You cannot really get that level of detail um, with a lot of other technologies. LiDAR you can, um, there's some challenges with LiDAR, but especially when we're deploying our systems in indoor spaces, we can network cameras together in real time to track trajectories across huge spaces. We're doing some really amazing stuff in retail at the moment where challenge for retailers is, is obviously staffing optimization. So by networking cameras together in one particular store, 30 cameras connected together. Um, the problem which I wanted to solve was how many staff should I have in each particular zone within the store? So telco, um, for example, whiteware. So we can track zone populations, how many people are in those zones, where do they move to, where do they go, all anonymously. Um, and then we can run forecasting your algorithms to predict how many people or particular staff they should have on those zones. So when you take a step back using that as an example, video is amazing because it enables us to do a whole lot more um, than just counting. And final, final question before I go on to James, Adam. You know, certainly in sort of smaller-ish spaces, you, you've certainly got a lot of experience and you're doing a lot of that. Is the sort of is the sort of city-wide replication of that something that is happening, or because it sounds logical, right? That understanding where people are, you know, where the hotspots are, dwell times, you know, just understanding the movement of people in a place in a community in a city just seems to be like a foundational data set of for any planner or designer right this is me talking for a moment but are you seeing that scaling at all or it's still sort of quite defined to a floor um you know a, a mall or a certain plaza have have we actually scaled up that idea anywhere that you've seen yeah look i think um cities um, especially in new zealand now and australia see the benefit of, of having these devices. So some cities are still, you know, sending people out with clipboards, but you know, that's doing the manual counts and there's always will be manual counts as part of a monitoring campaign, but that's an hour and a day. You know, if they're out there and it's raining and there's no one cycling or journeys across the cycleway or in a CBD, it's not very good data for making decisions. So yes, I do believe cities have been using, um, definitely see the benefit now. Some of our systems have been in place or say, for example, Auckland City for over 10 years. Um, and, you know, that Auckland City, um, heart of the city, use it for some pretty significant business decisions. So they're the business association, you know, the big massive retailers, you know, the number one question which I ask is what side of the street's busy? So some pretty significant investment decisions are being based upon the data as such. But it all comes down to scale, um, you know, 
you don't need to have sensors everywhere. Um, normally for our deployments in a New Zealand city, it's a bit different to Sydney or Brisbane, so to say, we're looking to play about 22 sensors to 40 sensors. And normally these cities start off with two or three and expand. Um, and that could be funded through private as well as public investment as well. Yeah, okay. James, I'm going to come to you about that question as well around cameras in, in places. What are you seeing, hearing? What's concerning you? What are you feeling optimistic about in terms of the, the use of cameras in our cities and places and spaces? Yeah, look, cameras, um, you know, are fundamentally problematic um, because of the perception that uh, the Big Brother perception. Um, and in fact, um, I've wanted a product which counts people using camera analytics that actually doesn't look like a camera because, in fact, it's not being used as a camera. So why would it need to look like one now? You know, maybe that's just a bit of a fiddle with, with how things look, but um, <clears throat> certainly that's there, there's opportunities there. Um, but there's different technologies. And um, so, so cameras... I guess they're, whilst they're uh, perceived uh, in different ways by the community, they also seem to be well accepted that you get cameras and you see them everywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm in Sydney at the moment and they're everywhere. Um, uh, so whilst some parts of the community will be quite vocal about them, there's probably a the vast majority of people aren't vocal about them and probably benefit from the safety aspects from a you know, public safety perspective. Um, of course, we're talking about object recognition and, you know, um, and uh, uh, video analytics. So we're not actually talking about public safety. We're, we're just using the camera for a completely different purpose. Um, so, you know, there's probably opportunities to, to use, you know, physical... Uh, devices to count people that might use a lens and uh, and camera equipment but doesn't actually look like one but there's also other opportunities and a camera isn't appropriate um, in every context anyway you know we did I did a lot of work in uh, in parks um, when I was working with council and many parks there's no fixed entry and access point so a camera is not that useful um, and we were using things like um, uh, Wi-Fi detectors that basically just pick up Wi-Fi devices um, around a, you know, if you can get that sensor into the sort of the middle of the park, you can pick up most of what's going on. Um, and then what are you using the data for? And um, a few people have talked about clipboards um, in this uh, webinar. And I, I guess that's always been a, um, a bit of a frustration for me is, is the clipboard survey? I just don't see much of the value. I mean, the, the reason it was done was because that's all it could could be done. But you know, it's it's just it's um, plainly obvious that it's not a particularly good data set. Um, one of the things that um, I see the value of is is longitudinal data, is data over time, and that's a lot of the work that we were doing uh, in council was about putting sensors in place and leaving them for them there for years so you can start to see uh, the i guess the impact say again for a park of population growth or, or population uh, decrease changing demographics etc um, so you're using that the both the, the slow data and the fast data um, now that i know what they mean um, to understand you know if there is demographic change um, that we're starting to see in the long-term, um, say, census data, we're now seeing actually also a change in visitation within a park. Does it need to be reconfigured for the new demographic that's 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 starting to come into that area? So, um, you know, so there's that obviously there's different technologies. Cameras one, but it's certainly not the only one. Just because of its accuracy, um, you actually don't need pinpoint accuracy when you're doing long-term trend analysis you're interested in percent change over time um, and if it's 10% out at the beginning and 10% out at the end 
you the the actual percent change over time is going to be pretty accurate so um they're the sorts of things um uh, that that i guess i was experiencing at council and and sort of continue to consider in my new role or what what are the suite of um uh, i guess data types and the sensors that, that generate that data that that are appropriate in different situations thanks james um lucinda Good question here that's come through around uh, traditional data gathering methods being augmented by new data collection methods. Um, I'd also say, you know, traditional data sets merging with, you know, new types of data assets. Um, is there a limit to sort of slow and fast data coming together, you know, real heavy tech-based vision source analytics, you know, versus clipboards? Can you can you talk to us from your perspective about sort of slow, fast, analog, digitally, you know, driven data assets coming together? What's that marriage look like? I think there is utility in all types of data for different types of questions. And, you know, take the census, for example, it's very slow. It gets out of date incredibly quickly. Uh, you know, it has its own level of bias as any data set would. But the fact that it's been around for so long provides a longitudinal trend that is actually very useful. The other thing about the census is that because it's been around for so long and everyone participates in it, they're not afraid of it. Um, and they're also, it can contextualize information for people in a way that they're familiar understanding. So what we've found is that combining behavioral data, which is very fast and very new, with, uh, or not necessarily combining, but overlaying and comparing to slow data can contextualize information in a way that makes it much more actionable. Uh, and so in that way, I think there is utility in, um, you know, maintaining, keeping, looking at those uh, other data sets. Other, other data sets will have a different purpose. So a community survey, for example, shouldn't be compared with big data. It's trying to tell you something totally different. Just because I can understand people's um, values, activities and behavioural patterns from big data doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask them about their ideas and aspirations for the future because that's a really important thing to do in a democracy. But it's actually not the same information. And I think that's where we get confused that we think one is going to replace the other. Uh, mm. When in fact, we need to be thinking about choosing the right kinds of data points that are actually going to help us answer the right kinds of questions. Uh, doesn't mean that there'll be no role for surveys in the future, but it does mean that the, you know, the information may be relied on less because we're able to mitigate, you know, perhaps the fewer louder voices with a whole lot of other information that speaks to population level behavior and, and desires and, and outcomes. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, Lucinda, and then um, Noreen, I want to go to you with the same question as well. Um, from your private sector perspective, how are you finding your clients' maturity in this space? Um, you're obviously, you know, working working with government entities. I'm, you know, private sector as well. But I want to talk about sort of, you know, public policy makers that you're working with. Um, are they are they sort of dipping their toe in the water because this sounds kind of, you know fun and maybe there's something there that's really innovative um do they clearly know what they're doing somewhere in between H how would you judge the demand for sort of this emerging world of you know place analytics you know private, fast data and stuff like that in the private sector in the public sector the, in the public, public sector the demand for this from from government yeah uh, I, I think it, it's the demand is really growing um, from a couple of reasons. I think one is that there is a appetite from citizens to have more transparent data-driven decision-making, more evidence-based for the way things that uh, are done. So that's sort of one demand factor. But I would say it's actually there are similar triggers which occur in the private sector in that lifestyles have changed. So if I'm developing an economic development strategy for a council, or if I'm looking at the future forecasting of a plan or a strategy for a major city, and I'm not taking into account the fact that people live differently, they spend time in different locations, they have different preferences and behaviours, then there's no way that I could be accurate with that strategy. 
so there is appetite, I think, in understanding the, the context differently because our baseline assumptions have shifted so far. Uh, but then the same with any um, particular company, the, the, the um, private sector customers will really be needing to think about how they action and put it into practice. So the usability of that data and analytics is always just fundamentally key, like throwing more data and numbers at people isn't what's needed, but intelligent analytics and knowing which analytics are going to shift the dial the most um, is, is critical as well. Yeah, okay. Noreen, same question for you. Oh, I've unmuted myself. Um, I, I would say that the, the clipboard thing is still very relevant because qualitative information is what we are trying to collect about places, the experience of people and the diversity of that. If anything, we probably need more of that um, or, or easier ways of doing that because, um, I don't know, going from unstructured big data into structured synthesized, you know, longitudinal data, uh, as Lucinda is saying, is like, you know, seeing the big patterns that arms the place practitioner with the information to then engage the community at a higher level, which of course is saving a lot of time and effort and cost. So we can spend our time crafting better solutions for the future. So I think part, part of our narrative is that I think we want to evolve the profession so we can use big data, whatever it is, video, other forms um, to get a higher level faster and then go into that community engagement phase with more information than we've ever had before to confirm you know what are the big trends we're seeing with the community who and, and then of course like becoming predictive um in terms of the maturity of the public sector i, I think australia is actually um and, and new zealand is ahead in many respects of other countries around the world um, we're able to move fast. We seem to adopt technologies. Um, there are skills deficits that are that are still real, I think, across government. Um, a lot of lifetime contracts, you know, people that have been there forever haven't had to necessarily upskill. Um, and that can create some resistance. But in, in general terms, I think maturity is rising and people are expecting evidence-based outcomes more regularly. And that starts to trickle into policy frameworks and different strategies from government. And you know, examples like can we can can e-scooters be in New South Wales? And that's a policy decision that needs to be informed by big data because you know you might understand, oh, it's gonna save two hundred million dollars for all these last mile trips because people can jump on this, you know, other mode of transport. And so I think. It's happening and it's getting there, but it is, it still needs momentum and we have to keep, you know, evolving how we communicate and talk with practitioners, uh, whether in the private sector, the design sector, or in the public sector to, you know, use all forms of data in the decision making process. And then it doesn't just get buried. I mean, that's the other piece is like one part of a big process of building stuff or managing things. And so we want to, the practitioner to take this into the process. Can I ask all of you the same question? And it relates to standardization. It relates to process. You've all got fantastic sort of solutions and products and platforms and things that allow this magic of place analytics to happen, right? Um, I, I haven't stumbled across an international standard for place analytics yet, um, it, but it's something that we're sort of trying to convince, you're all private sector, right? So I can sort of go to town here, but each and every one of you right now are trying to convince both public and private sector clients to kind of do this place analytics stuff and, you know, got different ways of doing that. Um, I, I don't want to go as far as saying, you know, or asking, you know, is, is this sort of a, a you know, a, a voodoo dark magic kind of, you know, world, but, and I don't know what my question is, I don't think, but 
I'd imagine there's people that are going to watch this and listen that kind of want a bit of confidence that, you know, what they might procure or, or, or get from all of you as, as private sector practitioners and providers and technologists that, you know, that there's something that that's not necessarily rigorous, but, you know, that they know that this is good, right? And a lot of the time, good uh, can be, you know, aligned with best practice and best practice usually has some sort of a rigorous framework or background or standard behind it. So can you, hopefully you understand what I'm sort of trying to get at here. Can you talk me through how, how, how are each of you going to convince your respective client worlds that you're doing best practice um, when I know there's, it's a bit vague as to what best practice looks like, or am I totally reading the tea leaves wrong there? Noreen, can we start with you? We'll go around again. I'm going to go straight back to you first. I'll be quick. I'll say that in the beginning, some data is better than no data. And right now there's a lot of that. So the best practice might just be like, we're going to collect something. We've never done it. We, you know, traditionally we haven't done that. Um, so the, I think that that's the start. The next one is um, it's on some level, the wild west of metrics, you know, you know, the, the SDGs and different green building frameworks, there are some standardized things that we agree to measure, but there are different ways of measuring it. And so, um, but I don't know. I mean, I would say that even if you look at an old young Gale study, we're studying the same thing. We want to know some fundamental things about places and people, and we want to report against that. And we want to be able to do that in a way that we can do it again. And that's important from our perspective is can we repeat what we're doing, even if the data sources change, right? I think that's, that's, that's a risk. Yeah. Okay. Great, great response. Lucinda, what have you got? few thoughts on that. I think uh, I agree. Some data is better than none. I often draw the analogy, like I'm a runner and I've been a runner like long before I had one of these, like I used to measure my runs in like the street directory and like it was possible. Right. Um, now that I have all this information about running, um, I can train much better. I can optimize much better. Um, doesn't mean that I, it doesn't mean that I couldn't run beforehand. So I think we're in that sort of space of it. The question is really often when it comes to actionability, you've got to be able to compare against something. So what we have at the moment is a lot of very descriptive data uh, and it needs to become comparative, diagnostic, predictive in order to become highly actionable. But the space that we're in is very, very complex. So measuring building emissions, okay, you can measure parts per million carbon emission. It's, it's a concrete thing. You can measure it. Measuring is a neighbourhood good is a very subjective question that has many, many more factors that need to go into it. So I think we will see more standardization, but I think it will come in broader buckets and less specific indicators. And it's coming from places like the ESG agenda, where the private sector is heavily aligned to demonstrating measurable social and economic gains in their building performance. There's lots of ways you can do that, but there is a commitment to do that. Uh, SDGs do that at an even higher level again. I think there is benefit in having some flexibility in the metrics because not all places should be the same. That would actually be terrible if we mandated them to all be the same because we actually, their brilliance, mm. understanding which ways they're diverse. And one of the big challenges at the moment is that no one's singing from the same song sheet. So did your place actually improve or did the weather just change is actually just a legitimate question because we might not have measured it the same way. So consistency in data collection so that we have those records so that we can apply insights is really important. Having frameworks and social research indicators that would help us understand what good looks like is very, very useful, uh, but not getting too wedded to that because we want to maintain place diversity is, is also a really important piece. Yeah, okay. Adam O'Connor, what what do you say, sir, about this? Um, so basically, I think um, in terms of uh, best practice for us with our clients, it's all about being a computer vision company, which basically provides data. The performance of a system is accuracy. So what we do as part of our um, system deployments is that we actually guarantee the accuracy down to 20 minute timeframes, which is taking the customer on the journey, installing, 
ground truthing, bringing that video, analyzing it, recording it all different times a day because video does have lots of issue outside with, um, with sunlight and shadow and, and, and most systems do fall over. Um, so we run a day's process to analyze the video, run a manual account where actually human verifies account, adjust the system, produce an accuracy, accuracy report, provide that to the client so they can see that's actually counting to a particular um, standard. And I think it is a bit of like the wild, wild west outside. Look, I've been in, you know, IoT, um, and a lot, lot of um, sensors and devices don't actually generate accurate data, but they're all sort of sold to be to be accurate. So if you uh, anyone's looking to procure a system, you need to understand how it's measured, the performance is measured. Um, all systems claim to be. I'll well, we use. I'll pick on computer vision systems. All people counting systems claim to be accurate, but without actually understanding what accuracy means, it doesn't say much. Yeah. So we've written a good white paper on that, um, which will be released soon. So keep a look out for it. Yeah, thank you. James, same question. We'll finish with you on, on, on this one. And then I want to quickly get a response to the, the, the Q&A that's in the box there. But um, so I, I'd imagine some of those comments from from the, the other panellists, I was watching your facial reactions there. A lot of that resonated, right? Yeah, that's right. And I guess there's two things that I'll comment on. Um, one is following on from Adam um, in a, around accuracy. You know, you go and get a temperature sensor and it'll give you a plus or minus, you know, accuracy, but rarely will you get that from place analytics data, people count data. And I think that it, that would, that would be an important addition because it's, it, it, it tells you well what's the appropriate use of this data and if you don't know the accuracy and you're assuming 100 percent that it just isn't then you're going to be making wrong decision decisions based on it the other thing is that i'm um, say from data standards and data format standards and things like that perspective there's um hundreds and hundreds of vendors out there some of which have found a standard over here or over there uh, from a client's perspective well you know, and when I was working in local government, you know, the, the architecture of our system effectively brought in the, the raw data from, from the, the, the vendor. And then we chose the standards that we wanted to transform it into so that we could have lots of different brands, say, climate sensors, but ultimately the data was, was the same format. So it was our responsibility to decide on a format. And, and the great thing about data is it can be reformatted and it's a really, you know, straightforward thing. So I don't think we'll ever get a standard that everyone's going to follow anyway. So we need to actually deal with reality, which is transforming the data to the standard that's appropriate for its use. Yeah. Okay. James, I'm going to get you to keep talking here. Questions come up. How can we most effectively marry the data and technology options with the business objectives and expectations, for example, such as expected and actual total costs of capture and analysis. So I'm, I'm going to pick on you to this one. Well, I mean, my my sort of philosophy on all of this is is what are you trying to count and why, and that then drives the kind of data you need to support that, which then drives the kind of devices you need to generate that data, and that's always the question. It, you've got to drive it in that from from you know top down rather than bottom up. Sometimes bottom up's handy just to find out what's available. But ultimately, you need to know what questions you're trying to answer. And uh, that, I guess that's, that would be my first response to that. But, but, but I mean, a, a very cheap sort of blip every hour telling me how many people are walking through a space versus 8K high def, you know, 10, 10, 10 fold X price, you know, like, there's no book for that as well, is there? I know, and and again, it gets back to longevity. Sometimes you might you might think you need engineering accurate measurement, but actually, what you need is okay measurement over time because you're actually interested in the change over time, um, as opposed to the the width of the pothole that you're measuring with a device. You know, so there's yeah, um, I, I think it it really comes down to having a much better understanding of what you're really trying to achieve. And often people don't. They just think this is how you measure, 100% accuracy. Yeah, yeah. Well, friends, we're at time. Um, gee, didn't that go quickly? And we really haven't started. We we're just warming up. So unfortunately, we need to, to sort of call it uh, call it there. That's time. Um, thank you all for joining this conversation and being part of, I suppose, just a little bit of 
pulling back the curtain on the world of place analytics. Um, really appreciate your various views and contexts. And for our audience, thanks so much for joining us and uh, look forward to seeing you on our next webinar very soon. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we hope you like this episode of Urban Life Enabled. Remember, if you'd like to subscribe, head to your favourite podcast platform. You'll find us there. Just search for Urban Life Enabled. You can also head along to our website to listen to all of our episodes and also find out more information about Life Enabled. Just head to the website lifeenabled.com. There's a hyphen between life and enabled. Thanks for joining us.